This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Carpe Diem with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was young, we're all on superstars. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me here again on this lovely Friday. I am your host, Lisa McDonald. This is my show, Carpe Diem, and we are live with the Contact Talk Radio Network. So, as I always do before I turn it over to unscripted dialogue with my guest, and once again, I've been blessed with phenomenal guests each and every week, I'm just going to plug a little bit about my guest bio, given that the the show is very far-reaching and expansive. It touches 145 countries, 220 TV, radio, terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. So today, listeners, we are joined with my guest, David Passara. And so who is David Passara? Well, David is the host of the Men's Family Law Podcast. He focuses on self-empowerment and self-improvement, especially in helping people put their lives back together after huge life-changing events such as divorce, breakup, and so forth. He's an internationally sought-after speaker. He is an author, a columnist, and podcaster. David is a multimedia content creator. YouTube videos have been watched over 140,000 times. Podcasts have been downloaded over 15,000 times. And his five books have sold from Burbank to Bangalore. So, David, thanks so much for taking the time out of your hectic schedule to join us today. How are you? I'm great, Lisa. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Well, it's such an honor to have you. You've obviously got some great stuff going on, and you're doing what all my guests do, and that's just putting yourself out there and enriching uh, the lives of many people, putting it forward, being of service to others. So in the way that you do that unique to yourself, maybe you can express to listeners and myself, what was the inception of your journey? How did this all begin for you, and when did you become abundantly clear, crystal clear, that this was the path that was intended for you? Well, for me, the, the motivating force has always been wanting to help people. From the time that I was a, a young boy at Catholic summer camp all the way through to probably yesterday in court, I've always been focused on other people's needs because what I found is that the more I give to other people, the more I get in the long run. What I have found is that when I need to learn a lesson, as I'm teaching, I'm frequently learning. So for me, one of the first things that happened was when I was a young boy, I was away at summer camp, and the uh, the kitchen staff had a had a lot of um, problems and needed help. So they they reached out to a bunch of the kids, and some of the older kids, and I was one of the older kids, were allowed to help out in the kitchen. And what I found was that by giving back to my community in that way, I got a great sense of satisfaction, and that really cemented for me the desire to help. Wonderful. And so when did you decide to embark upon the legal realm, the, the legal world? When did you decide that you wanted to help people with regards to that aspect specifically? I graduated college in 1989 as a, a liberal arts major, which effectively means I'm qualified to drink coffee and talk endlessly. So, 
those not being really great job prospects, my brother, who was a lawyer, and said, come to Los Angeles, spend the summer, and figure out what you want to do with your life. They thought, ah, you know, the summer, three months in Santa Monica, can't be that bad. Well, three months turned into three years, and three years of working with him in the law field made me realize that this is something I really did want to do, and it was uh, about 91 that I decided it was time to go back, or 92, time to go back to law school or go to law school, and at that point is where I started. When I got into law school, we started talking about some of the social justice issues that we law students tend to do, criminal rights, civil (laughs) rights, constitutional rights. And that, in many ways, sparked an interest on my part, again, to reach out and help people. I've always been sort of a a fan of the underdog. And that's one of the reasons why about 15 years ago when we had our practice, it was just a couple years old, I started focusing on men and family law because oftentimes men don't know what their rights are. They're not really well educated about it. There isn't a lot of support network out there for men in the family law arena. So I saw this as a need and decided to start fulfilling that need. Lovely. Well, as somebody who has been divorced, as somebody who went the collaborative law approach, um, do you find in your experience with the people, your clientele potentially, is that not an option for them? Does it have to be one side or the other? Can there not be some amicable united front approach, particularly if children are involved? I I prefer and I frequently counsel my clients that if they can do it without lawyers or perhaps with a mediator, it's definitely a better way to go. The reality is if you're interested in doing right by your children, doing right by your family, being able to move forward in your life as quickly as possible, it is definitely better to go in some sort of collaborative way. That said, you have to have both parties involved. Only one party cannot do collaborative law, as you well know. Mm-hmm. The reality, though, is that when people are willing to put aside their egos and put their children first, it can work really, really well. Absolutely. And so is there any kind of preliminary um, process, you know, because when people come into this, you know, when people render the decision of being divorced, as you know, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Uh, emotions are heightened. Perhaps people feel that they've been uh, blindsided, whatever the circumstances that would lead to the dissolution of marriage. So, you know, is there some type of educational tool where there might be at least an introductory type approach to going the collaborative route with both parties and then based on maybe both parties feeling heard, uh, visible, uh, equally represented, that there might be an opportunity to change that shift, that mindset? And make people less adversarial and defensive? There certainly is. And, and, and oftentimes people come to divorce court by way of marriage counseling. And, and good marriage counselors often say, really what we're doing is we're prepping people for the transition in their relationship. And, and that's what's really happening. I, I choose to look at divorce frequently as, as not necessarily the termination of a, of a relationship, but as a transition of one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly if there are children involved, I try and counsel people to remember that you're going to be connected going forward forever. And mm-hmm. as a consequence of that, the relationship is changing, your legal status is changing, but it doesn't have to be a mean, ugly, horrible experience if both parties are willing to play the game. 
Absolutely. So based on your expertise and based on this being your particular demographic, um, why do you think divorce rates have skyrocketed? What do you attribute that to? There, there are many factors. Um, I think one of the biggest ones is, is equality in our, in our society. The fact that women are much more self-sufficient these days, that as a consequence of that, they can be much more self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. So they don't, they don't get trapped in a marriage, in a bad marriage. And as a consequence, when a marriage is bad, they're more willing to move on with their life. I think from a man's perspective, their roles are changing and they're trying to grapple with the different expectations of now provider, father, husband, homemaker, stay-at-home dad, stay-at-home homemaker. There's all these new roles that are being determined. And as a consequence, we're in flux. Mm-hmm. So for the moment, we're definitely on, on a downward slide of marriage. I don't know if the, mar- the form of marriage is going to stick around the way in which it has been. I think mm-hmm. it will probably re- reconfigure itself in the coming generations because I think People normally do want to pair up. They normally do want to settle down. They like the consistency, the sense of security that comes from a marriage. Mm-hmm. The form of it might change. You know, o- over the lifetime of humans, uh, marriage and, and coupling has changed. We've seen it in very different formats, and we're just going through a period of change at the moment. And what do you forecast, David, as being the future of relationships or unions? I think in the long run that they will end up becoming much more satisfying and gratifying to people because as both parties in a relationship reach an equilibrium, reach a sense of equality, reach a sense of empowerment, they're now able to reach a relationship status that is got a, a much more solid foundation and that allows them to then be empowered and to fulfill their own life's purpose while at the same time being in a relationship. You know, if we look at like Nordic countries, where there seems to be a greater social uh, fabric of safety net. There seems to be a greater sense of equality between the sexes. The relationships are formed, they come together, they create children, and then they change. But there's much less anger, there's much less hurt. And I think that in many ways, the future of relationships across the globe is really going to be a version of what we see in the Nordic countries. Wow, that's inspiring. That's hopeful. Well, I think that I think humanity has always reached better and better heights. There's just always these moments of crisis where things are changing, and you know, as humans, our first factor is, "Oh my gosh, there's something changing. I'm in fear," and then we actually relax into it and realize the change can actually be a much better thing for us. My own personal experience with this, uh, I, I was in a relationship for five years. That relationship came to an end. It didn't end as gracefully as I would have hoped. I was a slightly angry, short, fat Italian dude and had a bit of anger. I took it out on my backyard by roto-chilling obsessively. Luckily, it was a really big backyard. And about four or five months into our really transitional phase – my ex had flown back. He was flying back and forth, and he came back from San Francisco one weekend, and we were sharing the dog. We still share the dog. And I went to pick up the dog. And we're having another usual weekend chit-chat of like, hey, how are you? How was your weekend? Great. You know, what's going on? 
and he, he made this comment. Oh, my God, it was so hot in San Francisco, we couldn't stay outside for more than 15 minutes. Now, I grew up out there. In the history of humanity, no one has ever said it was so hot in San Francisco. It's just not a city that that happens to. And it was at that moment that I realized we are two people going into different directions with two very different expectations of the world. He is a very fair-skinned person with red hair who sunburns easily. I am a short, fat, Italian background guy who likes to be outside working on my tan. We are totally different, going in totally different directions. When I realized that, all of my anger dissipated, and we're now actually able to have a much better, much more friendly, much more civil relationship. So I think that when relationships change, if you recognize that the change can be a positive thing, because both of us are now much happier, it's a good thing. And I think that that's sort of a – I think it's possible for everybody to get there if they choose to. Yes, and I like the fact that you emphasize the word choose, choice, because it, it is a choice. You know, our attitude towards whatever happens to us, and let's face it, I talk about this quite openly and quite consistently on radio with my guests. You know, life is unforeseen. Things happen all the time, and you can't be at this age stage in life and come out unscathed. You know, we all feel the same things at different stages in our life under the spectrum of emotion and challenge and obstacles, but it's what you do with that. And we talk about turning shit into gold all the time on this show. And clearly you've chosen to do that. So good for you, David. Thank you. So let me ask you, let me ask you this just quickly before you, you pick up with your thought there. So, you know, with what we see statistically happening with the rates of divorce, in your experience as well, are you noticing a drop off with the statistics of people choosing to get married? We, we are definitely seeing a drop off, uh, particularly in the under 35-ish group, um, there's many fewer, or there's, there are fewer starter marriages. You know, those one to two year marriages where people are like, oh, this really isn't for me. I picked the wrong person. Because what we're seeing is people are living together longer. Mm-hmm. They're having children together without marriage. And then they're realizing, like, I have a kid with this person. I really don't want to be married to this person. We're going to deal with the kid, and I'm going to go find somebody else that I really want to be married to. Okay. And so statistically, do you find second marriages are more successful? Statistically, they are. They are. Um, the, the basic rule is this. Your first marriage, you have about a 70 to 80% chance of ending up in a divorce. With your second marriage, you're hitting about 50 to 60% chance of a divorce. And by your, your third marriage, you're pretty much going to get it right. Well, let's hope it doesn't have to go to number three. <laughs> <laughs> That could be quite expensive. (laughs) It it certainly can't be. uh, But that's one of the reasons why, you know, when you look at the younger generations, they're less likely to do those first and second marriages because now they're realizing, like, let's go live together. Let's spend a lot of time together before we actually make these big commitments because it's a heck of a lot easier to uncouple just an apartment and a dog and, you know, a couple of, like, cable bills than it is to try and undo all of the things that marriage brings with it. So they're, they're coupling longer in the first, like, getting together. They're delaying their actual marriage. So hopefully what we'll see in 20 years is that the millennials have figured out that what they really ought to do is take some time and get to know people in a living together relationship before they jump into a marriage. 
Well, I'm sure the millennials will create an app for that at the very least. <laughs> oh, I think there's lots of apps. Yes. So in terms of all that you do, all the hats that you wear, and you do wear hats, nice fedoras. Uh, so let me ask you, yeah. So let me ask you then, David, in terms of, you know, having the acclaim of being an internationally sought-out speaker and being an author and having five books, you know, how did this momentum start to be for you? How did your name get out there? Was this a result of your podcast, or was this a result of, uh, you know, your success with your clients? Was it a culmination of all of the above? Where where did this momentum take off for you? The primary place in which my speaking career has grown, has been in personal referrals from people that have seen me speak. So the more you speak in front of people, the more likely it is that someone's going to recommend you to someone else to speak. The, the podcast has been a phenomenal experience for me in terms of learning how to get to those big names that I want to get to because it opens a lot of doors. It's been a phenomenal experience in learning how to talk to an audience so that the audience starts to engage with me. My first few podcasts, well, my actual very first podcast, no one can even hear anymore. It was so bad, I had to delete it. <laughs> over, over, the last, over the last 40 episodes, what I've done is I've developed a skill and I've learned how to engage with an audience and given out my information so that they know that they can go to david at mensfamilylove.com, send me an email with their questions, and I will respond to them. That has happened. That type of engagement comes, and what that does is that develops them, that develops the relationship with them to the degree that they know, like, and trust me. So when they want to or need to hire a lawyer, I'm the first one they think of. Wonderful. My videos, yeah, my videos on YouTube have been a wonderful training experience, not just for how to like, tell a story and how to make videos, but again, it's that audience engagement where people get a chance to see them. They can engage with me, and as a consequence of that, they know, like, and trust me. That's been a building process. The books have been an awesome experience. We wrote a book called What About Wally? It's how to co-parent a pet with your ex. Ex and I share the dog I mentioned. Mm -hmm. That story got picked up by the Associated Press and went global. There's a picture of me on the cover of the Kuwait Times with my dog, with my co-author and his dog, talking about how we're talking about co-parenting pets. Wow. A global story has led to clients and people finding me all over the planet. So it's sort of all one giant stew and that things loop back on themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to pretty much put yourself out there in all of these different markets. And remember that the primary thing is A, B of service, and that means audience engagement and responding to emails when they send them to you. Mm-hmm. And when Excellent. you do that, your business will build. So when you get sought out for these speaking engagements, are you finding that your demographic is more uh, based on people who have already gone through the process of divorce and, and you know, trying to heal from relationships? Or are you being sought out from people from a more uh, proactive standpoint who perhaps before they embark on making the lifetime commitment, uh, the life-altering decision of getting married? Uh, that's who you're being asked to connect with? Like, who, who is it that's seeking you out for this? What type of audience? It, it, it's interesting. I have two main audiences, and, again, it's, it's built by referral. 
So I have one where it's my personal journey story of being a fat kid and then going to school and becoming a lawyer and becoming an alcoholic and then getting over alcoholism and then having this inspirational story of how to rebuild your life. So when, once you tell that story once, the people in the audience will then refer you to other places to retell that story. Okay. On the legal side, there's a whole aspect of divorce, child custody, domestic violence. That's a huge area right now where I'm asked to speak on a lot because it's such a hot topic and it crosses over from marriage and family life and parenting into college campus dating and sexual assault. So are these two kind of divergent areas? And depending on where you've seen me speak is where you, you will refer me to speak again. So it's, I go in two different paths. Excellent. And do you have a preference? I, I would probably prefer to do the inspirational because what I have found is that that feeds my soul more, mm -hmm. and that's a much more rewarding process. You know, telling somebody how to get a restraining order, telling them the, the horrors of their divorce, the horrors of the Child Protective Services system – it's certainly useful and necessary, and it's rewarding. But it's not what, at the end of the day, makes me just wake up and be like, I'm going to change people's lives for the better today by telling them how to get a restraining order. It's just not the sort of thing that you're going to wake up and be like, I want to go do that. <laughs> telling people how to see their flaws, confront their flaws, move forward with their life, recognize that fear is inherent in everything, that, that resistance to change is the problem. It's not the actual change that's the problem. And giving them some tools to be able to examine their life and move forward and build a solid foundation is much more rewarding in the long run from a spiritual perspective. Excellent. Well, again, going back to the fact that my brand is living fearlessly, what would you suggest to people, the listening audience here or the people that you speak to in the live audiences on the stage, uh, what are the essential ingredients, the core ingredients that you believe uh, predetermine being able to authentically live a life without fear? When I'm working with somebody, one of the first things I do, and because I tend to work more with men just as an outgrowth of the Men's Family Law podcast, I sit them down and I say, okay, you have a good self-esteem, right? And I know that they don't, but, that's, but they think they do. Mm -hmm. So give me a list of 10 positive traits you have. And they're like, oh, that's going to be really easy. And they start writing, and they'll come up with, well, I'm smart, and I'm loyal, and I'm hard, hardworking. And then they stall out, and they can't come up with the next seven things to say. And I'm like, all right, good. This is really good news because this is what's been holding you back. Mm -hmm. Let's come up with the list. Let's, let's figure out. Are you charming, outgoing, dedicated, concerned? Are you the sort of person that's going to remember people's birthdays? Are you humorless? Are you humorful? Are you very funny? Are you the sort of person that remembers to be there when people are going into the hospital or when they have family members in the hospital and reach out to them? So are you generous? Are you gregarious? And what I do is I start coming up with these descriptor words, and the people will be like, oh, yeah, that fits, that fits, that fits. I'm like, great. What does that mean? You just said that you are, quote, unquote, adorable. What does that mean? And they're like, well, you know, it's, uh, uh, well, like a teddy bear. I'm like, okay, teddy bears are stuffed and furry. You're neither of those. 
Adorable means worthy of being adored. Mm-hmm. If you want to claim the word adorable as a character trait, which I think you are, what that means is you are actually worthy of somebody loving you. And what it does is that when we go through all 10 and we kind of break down the definitions, we're building a foundation from which they can then look at themselves and their life and be like, oh, I really am worthy. I really am adorable. I really am gregarious. And now they can start acting on that and move forward in those areas where they want to move forward, whether it's professionally, whether it's personally in a relationship. And as a consequence of that, there's still going to be some fear, but it's lessened greatly because what I've done is I've given them some positive tools and a foundation that they can move forward with. Fantastic. Good stuff, David. Well, you know, one of the questions that I feel compelled to ask uh, guests, especially when we talk about – because this show and the network itself, it's all premised on personal empowerment, uh, personal development, personal growth, all that yummy stuff that I just absolutely love to sponge up. Um, so when we know that we are currently in times riddled with strife and tension and, you know, people just can't even be diplomatic on the stage without ripping people apart – uh, you know, there just seems to be some volatility, some escalated volatility, and these are the people who are in a leadership role. And so when we're talking about, you know, relationships operating, whether it be at the micro level or the macro level, you know, how do people get clear? How do people get grounded and begin to not only trust themselves, trust their judgments of who they're embracing in their closest circles of life, never mind their significant other, potentially, um, you know, how do we ask people and what would you say to people who are really struggling to find balance? And, and people will arguably say balance doesn't exist. People will say balance does exist or that's the quest, you know, to be balanced within this lifetime. You know, how do you aspire to find these things to keep you grounded when whatever you tune into, whether it be the news, whether it be current affairs, whether it be things locally or globally happening in your hemisphere, you know, there's just so much going on. There's so much overstimulation. You know, everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's looking to denigrate people, it seems. And, you know, there's escalated violence. How does that trickle down? How do you equate that? with the stability or the, har- the the potential to have a harmonious relationship and not get caught up in all of that. Are you familiar with the, the parable of the Chinese farmer? Uh, perhaps. Okay. Um, young boy goes into the forest one day and he comes back and he brings back a, a horse. And the Chinese farmer's there and looking at the horse. And the farmer's wife says, oh, my gosh, now we've got a horse to feed. What are we going to do? It's going to be so expensive, blah, blah, blah. And she's, she's in fear. And the, the farmer says, eh, we don't know. Could be good, could be bad. We'll figure it out. The next day, the boy gets on the horse, and he tries to break the horse so he can put a saddle on it. And the horse bucks him off and throws him, and the boy breaks his leg. And the mom is, you know, justifiably Set and scared and worried about her son and, and his dad, dad's like, I don't know, it could be bad, it could be good, we don't know yet. A couple days later, an army comes marching by and they're taking all of the young men that are of the right age and ability to go to war. But they don't take this boy because he's had a broken up leg. My point is, we don't know whether something is good or bad until 
we can look backwards. We can mm-hmm. see how, what its play is in the big picture. The horse is a bad thing when it was just a source of it has to be fed. It's a good thing that it actually caused the boy to break his leg, which prevents him from going to war and likely to be killed. Mm-hmm. I have heard this parable. It's a very good one. Thank you for reciting that and sharing that with our listening audience. David, I'm just going to ask you to stand by. We're just going to quickly cut to a commercial break. So I want to thank listeners once again for joining us here on my weekly show, Carpe Diem. I'm your host, Lisa McDonald, joined by my phenomenal guest, David Passara. We'll be right back. Did you know that you can rate our shows on iTunes? Yep, you can share your thoughts about the topics, the hosts, and the special guests. You can also leave a suggestion. Then, when you're done, rate the show. The hosts love your feedback, and others appreciate it. So next time you download a show, take a second to leave your thoughts and rate it. If you want to stay on top of everything that's happening at Contact Talk Radio, there's no simpler way than following us on Twitter. You'll know what shows are currently playing, who the special guests are, what topics are being discussed. The information is always fresh. You can follow us on Twitter by going to twitter.com slash CTR Network. It's easy. Again, that's twitter.com slash CTR Network. Better living is just a tweet away. Mama told me when I was young, we're almost superstars. Hey, listeners. Thanks so much for joining me here again on my show, Carpe Diem. I am your host, Lisa McDonald, and I am once again here joined by David Passara. So, David, I want to thank you very much for sharing with us that parable. I have seen that come across my live feed in Facebook land. And, uh, yeah, certainly a lot of food for thought. So I guess that that encompasses your answer to my question of, whether we're talking micro, macro level, when we see what's happening out there in the external world and trying not to let that affect us internally, trying to believe in the fact that there can be harmony within our relationships, that we can be at peace within ourselves and try to put distance between all this conflict that we're seeing. That's what you're tying it back into, correct? Correct. And because I think we get focused on the moment moment, but when we look at something in the big picture, the moments become much more part of an overall trend, and then you don't have to get quite so caught up in the individual moment. Excellent. I like that. So why don't you share for us, David, you know, because we're all about walking our talk. So uh, for people who, again, given how expansive and far-reaching this program is, um, you know, why don't you share with us, as I'm sure listeners would be interested to know, what are some of your daily rituals or mantras and mentors that have kept you on the path that you believe you're intended to live and to lead? The, the most powerful mentor I have ever had, I never even met, was a man named Emmett Fox. And he was in the, the, the turn of the 19th century. He was sort of a spiritual teacher he was he was christian guy but his message really in many ways i think transcends 
Christianity and, and any sorts of religion. It's more of how do you operate in the world? And that's how I apply it. He wrote a book called Sermon on the Mount, and the first half of the book is about the Beatitudes in the Bible, which, believe, don't believe, not really the issue. From my perspective, that first half of the book, I didn't really enjoy, so I don't pay a lot of attention to. The second half of the book, he took the Lord's Prayer, and he broke it down clause by clause. And he wrote a chapter on each clause, and said, and the first one is, Our Father. And he says, right there, that sums up my entire relationship to the world because of the word our means all of us together and father sets up a parent-child relationship. So we as humans are all in relation to each other as siblings to a higher power. Mm-hmm. That, when I first heard that, which has also been said by Oliver Wendell Holmes, it, it just a light bulb went on and it made my entire life much easier because now when I see someone who is acting in a way that I find confrontational or objectionable, I no longer looking at them as someone who is so different as an other. I'm looking at them now as that's my crazy brother in my family and I have to figure out how to deal with it, <laughs> which makes life much easier. When you realize that you do, if you just take that perspective, suddenly you're no longer in this really adversarial perspective, which is odd coming from a divorce lawyer, I realize. But what I have found is that when I apply that in my practice, whether it's with clients, whether it's with lawyers, whether it's with judges, my attitude changes. And as a consequence of that, the relationship changes. Mm-hmm. Love it. And that's he—he he was probably my biggest mentor, going from that perspective. Um, in terms of daily rituals, when it comes to prayer, I'm not the kind of guy that gets down on his knees on a regular basis. I—I mm-hmm. I do do it. I just don't do it on a daily basis. But what I have found is that when I go into a stressful situation, by saying a prayer or a mantra, even if it's just as simple as a serenity prayer or the Lord's prayer or just pop, help me out. I don't know what I'm getting myself into, and I know I need some help through this. Give me what you got. Mm-hmm. It, it's enough to just reset my thinking so that I can go into something a little more clear, a little more calm, and as a consequence, the results tend to be better. Excellent. Well, and yeah, there is no re- religious affiliation with my program whatsoever, and I'm a very spiritual person. And for many of the guests that I've had on the show, like Deepak Chopra, uh, David Suzuki, many other people, you know, when we talk about rituals, we talk about mantras, oftentimes we talk about things like self-proclamation statements, you know, the I am statements, and uh, really becoming your best friend and really loving yourself because without that there is no foundation to truly love other people or to accept other people unconditionally if you struggle with that within yourself to begin with uh we talk about meditation you know some people uh it's being out in nature uh for some people it's their relationship with the universe as opposed to a specific god so yeah it you know there there really is no ceiling on this it's whatever uh you find works for you that allows you to operate at your personal best. And so thank you for sharing with us what some of that uh, entails for you, David. Um, Pleasure. So when you look at your own breakthroughs, when you when you look at some of the transformational moments that have happened in your life outside of the example that you already provided with your former partner and the dog and 
you know, being in the garden and the road tiller and all that kind of stuff. What else, what else does that encapsulate for you? What, what other things can you share with us that shows the evolution of David Passara, the human being? I, I think the, one of the big ones was I had, I had invested in a company and, and the guy that was running the company wasn't the most ethical person. And he had taken my, in, my investment and I was supposed to have 25% of the company and he had um, reduced that down to a 9% interest. Wow. And I was, I was slightly upset about this, which is my way of saying that I was ready to just, you know, spit nails. I was so angry. Mm-hmm. But there was not – but being a lawyer and, and knowing, like, okay, there's – what are you going to do about this? Is it really worth fighting over? Do you want to file a lawsuit? No, 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 none of that makes sense. So I just waited. And about nine months later, the company goes under – and I am just really, really angry at this point. I'm, I'm on a jet ski out in Riverside and I'm going around and around and around this island. I'm just taking the jet ski and I'm pounding it into the water. I'm just taking all my anger out. And as I'm doing it, I'm just hitting into the water. A light bulb went on in my head. And I realized that this guy had not been paying the federal payroll taxes. And that's a federal felony, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Mm-hmm. You're guilty, pay the money, or go to jail, or both. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God. When he took me from 25% shareholder in the company down to a 9% shareholder in the company, he took me below the 10% managing member limit who is responsible for those payroll taxes. And all of a sudden, my anger again dissipated mm-hmm. because now I realized, like, oh, he actually did me a huge favor <laughs> because now when the letter comes from the IRS and says, where's the money, I can just write back and go, no, sorry, not a managing member. And, they, and that's exactly what happened. And I got a letter back saying, you're right. Thank you very much. And I was done. And it was the best moment. Wow. Again, able to see things and take the long view mm-hmm. is what really makes a difference in people's lives. And it's made a difference in my life. When, when I am in the middle of something, I try and remember that this is just a moment and I have to step back and look at the big picture. And when I look at the big picture, moments become much less powerful to me. Wow. Good stuff. Well, I often talk about, and what I've cited in some of my own speeches, David, is, you know, I really inherently believe in once somebody connects with their pain, they very clearly, very rapidly connect with their passions. And so there's no coincidence. I don't believe in coincidences. When you look at the different people, no matter how they're similar to you, no matter how different they are from you, what it is they aspire to do for a living, how they choose to embrace particular passions that light them on fire, you know, it's they've gotten exactly, as I mentioned, very purposefully clear on what it is they feel they're meant to do. And so oftentimes they will acknowledge that the gift has come from their darkest moments. It was in that moment, as you said in the very beginning of the show at the top of the hour, you know, you're faced with that choice. You know, when you're sitting in the shit and you can't believe how you got there, 
uh, you're faced with the choice of you either stay stuck and succumb to it and live in a, a sphere of victimology or you choose to rise. And when you get very clear on the direction you wish to go in and you, you're committed to taking one step every day, one foot in front of the other every day and immersing yourself in the positive stuff, the affirming stuff, the yummy stuff that keeps you focused and keeps the real in your head playing over and over again clear and motivated, um, you know, you can look back on the darkest times in your life and go, you know what? That was a blessing. That was a blessing because had that particular circumstance or incident or that person who perhaps, uh, you know, treated me wrongly or unfairly or unjustly, had that not happened in my life, this this wouldn't be my calling, perhaps. This wouldn't be the message that I meant to impart with the rest of the world. And you being that testimonial to say you can get through it if you ought to never to quit, if you ought to have a stellar attitude. So, uh, you know, there's no coincidence that you're just one of every single guest pretty much that I've had on my show that has been able to connect the dots on that. Good. One of the speeches and presentations I do is called the first pancake rule. And, you know, we've all made pancakes, and you generally take that first one, and it's either underdone or it's burnt. Mm-hmm. Throw it away. And you just move on. And I, in, in my speech, I talk about the time that my mother taught me how to make pancakes. And she said, Duddy, it's okay. Your first one of everything is usually going to be horrible. And when we first made our pancakes, the first one I made was just burnt to a cinder. <laughs> because I didn't understand what she meant. She said, when the bubbles start coming up and they pop, you flip it over. Well, Mm -hmm. I heard when all the bubbles come up and they all pop, well, if you wait till all the bubbles come up and pop, you're going to have a very burnt pancake. (laughs) That's when she taught me the lesson. And I've applied that same rule in almost every area of my – actually in every area of my life, truth be told. Mm -hmm. The first time I wrote a book, it was ugly and horrible and it – wasn't well written it wasn't properly formatted it wasn't printed well it was on the wrong page i was just a mess mm-hmm. my last book got picked up by the associated press and went global fantastic my first podcast was so bad nobody can hear it anymore because it had to be thrown away my last podcast i'm getting people saying that was phenomenal thank you very much for sharing you're changing my life amazing Whenever we start on something, our first efforts are always going to be horrible. And if we can just remember that, we will get past the horrible and we will get to the good. Excellent. Well, I'm going to challenge you on something here, David. Um, So, you know, I think it's a shame that you actually uh, got rid of your first podcast. Because for me personally, I think it's very important. I mean, you obviously have the memory and the recollection of knowing the inception of when this all started for you. And, you know, when you cite the pancake analogy learnt by your mother, uh, the bubbles, I mean, I think that's a great analogy. Um, but I think it's great to keep those things around, the first of anything, because that's a real barometer, I believe, for measurement of our own growth and the commitment to continue growing as opposed to throwing in the towel going, okay, I didn't get it right out of the gate or it wasn't, you know, and there's no such thing as perfect. But for your definition of how you would have opted for that to have wanted to go, you know, 
I think that says a lot for the evolution of who David Passara is. And so I think it's a shame that you got rid of that. You know, when you put it in that way, in that frame, I think I have to agree with you. <laughs> I, I think you're right. I, I, looking back, I kind of wish in, in the context of this conversation that I did have that. Maybe it's not a backup someplace. I'll have to look. But yeah, know, that's a that's that's a very valid and important point, and I'm glad you made that. Well, I would encourage you to do that because, you know, if I parallel that with, say, for example, my children, uh, the one who – my eldest who's uh, just on the cusp of turning eight and my youngest who is six, 18 months apart, you know, I don't throw away the first picture they ever painted or the first attempt to write mummy or their name just because they didn't grasp it. I mean, that's something that they're going to look back on in the archives of the book that mummy puts together for them. And they can go, wow, I, I made that attempt. That's what I was doing when I was 18 months old. That's, you know, I, I just think that's, uh, I think we're so apt to want to, and I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to, uh, my, my example speaks to all here. Uh, I just think it's really important that when we value our own growth, when we value our own momentum and the life changes and the things that we've grasped, and you talk about the light bulb going on at different times within your life, as it does for all of us, you know, it's very important, I think, to have those initial reminders of what got us to where we are today. And if we try to pretend it never existed or we try to shut the door on it or make it seem that that wasn't our first whatever it was, and we just want to quickly go to the second to the third, whether we're talking your books, whether we're talking your podcasts, you know, I think it makes you even more of a shining star to say, look at how far I've come from the very first to where I am currently. That's absolutely a, a valid point. And I, I hear you very clearly on that one. And I think that you're right because it is that evolution. It is that whole range. Again, it, you're taking what I'm saying and expanding it even further, which is fantastic. Cause what am I saying? Don't focus on the moment. Focus on the big picture. And right. I focus on the moment, and I throw it away. And maybe I shouldn't have. Maybe I should focus <laughs> on the big picture. I should so take Dave my own advice. What do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> so David's going to try and resurrect that first podcast. Yay! Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to splash that everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> So let me ask you this too, David. Um, you know, my former vocation, one of the positions I held, it was a director of women's shelter. So, you know, we talk about very similar to what you do, different line of work, but it all goes back to self-empowerment and advocacy and whatnot. And, you know, one of the things that was very important, a very important piece, a training piece for the staff, including for myself at the management level, was we talked quite openly about vicarious trauma. And so for your role of what you've been subjected to and what you've been in the trenches in, uh, in terms of testimonials, hearing things that have come out of dark places perhaps in people's lives, people being exceptionally raw, vulnerable, uh, hearing some not nice details that reflect certain aspects of humanity when you're talking about perhaps a domestic violence case, whatnot, you know, how do you, how do you keep yourself, prevent yourself from becoming completely jaded or becoming 
burnt out or uh, not operating at your full maximum for your clients or for yourself? I have used uh, many different methods to do that. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I did not know that you ran domestic violence shelters. I'm, I'm actually doing a documentary about domestic violence shelters and, and men's relationship to them. I was just in Arkansas interviewing an executive director of the one and only men's shelter in the United States at the moment. When we're talking about the, and that is on some level part of what I do. That's, that's the, I'm taking a proactive stance and trying to shine light as part of my self-care. I'm working on a project that is rewarding to me in terms of learning how to make a documentary, how to become a filmmaker about something that I have enough foundational understanding that I can see different aspects of it and I know the questions to ask and the points to stress. So for me, having a, a hobby or, or another alternative of exercise or something that I can put my energy into is crucial to take the pain that I experience on a regular basis with my clients and move that into a positive direction. So because I do hear a great many horror stories of what people do to each other, I'm trying to take that pain and channel it into something that could be positive to limit or ameliorate the pain in the future for others. Excellent. And do you still love what you do? Are you very, I mean, there's different aspects of what you do that fall all within the umbrella of uh, the legal aspect, but are you still passionate about being a lawyer? Does that feed your soul? Being a lawyer, yes. Um, being a family law attorney, it, it has changed dramatically in the last 15 years. When I first started, this was very much a um, professional's game. You would pick up the phone and you would talk to the other side and you would, would try and work out as quickly as possible a settlement. Mm -hmm. And over the last 15 years, what has happened with thanks to LegalZoom and a lot of the computer technology that has increased, the, the game of family law has become much more cutthroat and much more ugly. And mm -hmm. part of that has been facilitated because of the domestic violence lobby, which has now taken the domestic violence protection orders and made them so easily obtainable and so comprehensive in what they can do that now properly drafted a domestic violence restraining order application is essentially a divorce by ambush. Mm -hmm. So there's no sense of fair play anymore because it's so much more advantageous to just go immediately for someone's throat with a domestic violence restraining order. And many attorneys and many litigants see that as the proper way to go about this and they're looking at the short term of how to gain control in the situation, not the long term. What's the damage I'm doing to my family in the long run? And I think as a consequence of that, this, the, the practice of family law has become much more ugly and combative and less fulfilling. Mm -hmm. So from my perspective, being a lawyer is great. Being a family law lawyer has definitely changed, and I am – questioning what we are doing, not just in my practice, but on a societal level, what we're doing to families and what needs to change there, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons why I'm doing this documentary, because I am on some level frustrated with the way it's happening in family law, 
because I see so much damage that's done long-term all in the name of the almighty dollar, whether it's the lawyers looking for billable hours or it's a litigant who's looking for a, for an advantage in child support or alimony. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't know where I will be in five years. Um, I, I, I do know that I will have more of a mentoring role, more of a filmmaker role, more of a coaching role, because that's really feeding my soul these days. Mm-hmm. And when, you, when you go to davidpizarro.com and you see my videotapes of my speeches and when you see the work that I'm doing and the direction I'm going of empowering men to take control of their lives and to move past bad relationships and to heal their wounds and to take that trauma that they suffered and turn it into something positive, that's really where I want to go. I want to pivot from the family lawyer that I'm at to more of a men's empowerment coach moving forward. And I don't know that I will ever completely give up family law because I can do a great deal of good as a family law lawyer. Mm -hmm. But I also know that there is definitely burnout factor. There is definitely vicarious trauma that has affected me. No doubt. No doubt. Um, The other thing I challenge you to do, David, because, you know, we're all teachers and mirrors to each other. So when you go back at the, you know, the middle of the show and we were talking, you were talking specifically about some of the things that you say to your male clients uh, at the beginning, you know, list me, itemize 10 things uh, that you would characterize yourself to be. And we talked about the I am statements, right? Mm -hmm. I would really encourage you to step away from saying I am fat. I don't like that. <laughs> okay. That's your that's a very good statement. It's a very yeah. good insight. Yeah, because it's a very it's a very uh it's a limiting belief, you know, especially when what you do when you talk about empowerment, that's that's about the mind, spirit and the body and how that all works together. And so if we're in a role of leadership and we're trying to get people who are making I am statements to step into their greatness, then as the leader, we need to get away from the reverse of that. And, you know, and I know there's two schools of thought. You know, I think people who are the most confident and the people who are the most assured, self-assured, are the people who can laugh at themselves and, uh, you know, poke fun at themselves. And I know that that's probably more so the spirit in which that derived out of. I just want to see the first podcast come back, and I'd like to see you drop the I am fat statement. That's all I ask. So, Fair enough. There's unfortunately not much time left in our show. It always goes way too quickly for my liking. So I would like to give you this opportunity before finally wrapping up, David. Where can people find you? Where can people find your books? How do people connect with you if they want to seek you out for a speaking engagement? Where's your podcast? How often do you do your podcast? Let's let's go with all that. Sure. The, the main family law website is Men's Family Law. And on there I have three books for men. Uh, child custody, divorce strategy, and domestic violence. They're short books designed to be quickly read. Just a quick overview for men. My podcast is on iTunes. It's Men's Family Law. There's about 44, I think, episodes up right now. I've got three in the can that I'm finishing up, hopefully this weekend. The videos are on YouTube. Again, it's Men's Family Law, but it's all one word on YouTube. 
and I've got 47, 48 different videos there to help people on what is a restraining order, what's a request for order. There's a DIY course for people who have the starter marriages with no kids and no assets and how to get the forms done. My main website is David Pizarra, D-A-V-I-S-A-R-R-A.com. And that's where you can find my speeches, the first pancake wall, and some of the other work I've done, where I'm speaking in the future, and some of my inspirational work. Excellent. So very, very quickly, because we truly do have to wrap up here, what is the legacy you choose to leave behind? How do you wish to be remembered? As someone that helps people find their, their purpose in life and to make them happier. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you very much, David, for joining me here on the show. And if you ever need somebody to be in that documentary in any aspect, you know where to find me. <laughs> thank you. We appreciate it. So I want to thank very. I want to thank once again uh, my listening audience who continually shows their loyalty. Uh, that's reflected in the numbers. I couldn't be more gracious, more grateful uh, for all of you. Uh, truly. You know, I couldn't be here doing what I do every week if there wasn't true interest on your part uh, and listenership. So I want to thank you very much for joining me. Again, I'm Lisa McDonald. This is my host show, Carpe Diem. I go live every Friday with the Contact Talk Radio Network. If you wish to reach out to me in any capacity, whether it be to talk about radio specifically, uh, to perhaps invite yourself to be on my show as a prospective guest, any show topic ideas you would wish to put forth, I would love to hear from you. I always welcome the feedback. I can be reached at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. McDonald is spelled M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D. Alternatively, I can be reached at lisamcdonald13 at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, a few pages on Facebook. Would love to hear from you. Once again, I want to wish everybody a fantastic safe, healthy weekend, and good luck getting back into the routine. For those of you who aren't already have children back at school, good luck with that transition. Thank you, David, for the gift of your time. Look forward to perhaps having you back on my show at a later date to talk about the documentary. Take care, everybody. You, All my best. Lisa from Dundas, Ontario, Canada. Take care. You've been listening to Carpe Diem with your host, Lisa McDonald. For more information, please go to Lisa's website at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.